Welcome to 30 Minute Theology, where we discuss the basics of Catholic belief and practice. I am your host, John Bacon, and with me today is my co-host, Brother Mark. Mark, how are you doing? John, I'm doing fantastic again today. Excellent. Today we are going to be continuing our walk through um, Jesus Christ. Last episode, we focused on Christology itself, how we understand who Jesus is and his divinity and humanity. Mm. Well, this for these next three episodes, actually, we're going to be looking more closely at um, kind of these three different aspects of Christ's ministry. And these are prophet, priest, and king. I'm really excited about this because um, these are archetypes that Christ himself fulfills. A great illustration of this, as all great illustrations are found, is in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> You know, I don't know how many of our listeners have read or watched Lord of the Rings or instead have lived under a cave for the last 65 years. But in Lord of the Rings, you know you have three heroes. You have Gandalf, the wise wizard. You have Aragorn, the mysterious messianic king figure. And you have Frodo, the pure-hearted priest figure. And you basically have a prophet hero, a priest hero, and a king hero. And while Tolkien did not equate any one of those characters with Christ himself the way that Aslan is Jesus incarnate as a lion in Narnia, nonetheless, those three heroes, Gandalf, Aragorn, and Frodo, they all reflect a, a sort of different dimension of Christ by epitomizing one of these three offices that Christ himself assumes. Priest, prophet, and king. Today we are going to be looking at um, Jesus' prophetic ministry. And of course we can't divide it as if he has like three different ministries. We're not so much talking about his prophetic ministry as much as we are talking about the prophetic dimension of his ministry. And of all the prophets in the Old Testament, I think that the greatest is Moses. So first we should probably say a little bit about what a prophet is. And I think that's a misunderstood concept, and uh, then we'll look at Moses a little bit more specific. Uh, Mark, you're a wonderful Bible teacher. Can you say a little bit about what a prophet is? A prophet is somebody who speaks on behalf of and for God. Uh-huh. That's basically it. <laughs> That's basically it. And not everything they say is futuristic, is it? No, absolutely not. In fact, most of the prophecies, depending on which denomination you're a part of, Yeah. Um, as little as 2% of biblical prophecy actually points to future events yeah. as we would consider them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the, um, well, I won't go into Lord of the Rings. We'll do that another time. But now let's go to Moses, because Moses is, I believe, an archetypal mm. prophet of Israel. I mean, he is the, pr Moses himself has priestly, and kingly qualities to his leadership. I mean, he is um, a liturgical leader of the people of Israel. It is through him that God gives the liturgical dimensions of the temple and the requirements for sacrifice and worship. And he also has a kingly quality in that he is the leader and he actually leads Israel into battle. Yeah. But more than those two, 
priest and king, he is first and foremost a prophet because he sees God face to face and lives. Uh, he, yes, it, that's tricky. In one sense, Moses does not see God face to face because there's that passage where God says, can any man see my face and live? Man. But at the same time, two chapters later, it says God speaks with Moses as a man speaks with his man. friend face to face. So Moses has a very direct um, life of encounter with communication with God. And it is through Moses that God gives the teaching, the Torah, the instruction to the people of Israel. We think of that as the Ten Commandments. The Torah includes the Ten Commandments, but it's not reducible Man. to that. Okay, so God uh, does a lot through Moses. Uh, part of the proof of his prophetic ministry is the signs and wonders and plagues that he performed in Israel. We spoke about this a little bit in a previous episode. Um, but Moses is just an amazing character with an amazing story. I think that Exodus and Numbers both are two of the most fascinating mm. books of the Bible. Just have yeah. some of the most unforgettable stories in them. And there's this really cool passage in Deuteronomy where Moses tells the people of Israel that God will raise up for you right. another prophet like myself. Yeah. So when you mention him, him being archetypal, that and Moses knows that. Yeah. That and that's in uh, Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen, where he says, "Yeah, one day God's going to send you a prophet like me." Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which is when you get to the New Testament, you do have the crowd asking, "Is this the prophet?" Yeah. Um, he's not just any prophet. In some cases, uh, they accuse him of being a prophet, or is he like Jeremiah? But <clears throat> some recognize that, okay, he might be the prophet that Moses was pointing to. Yeah. So in order for Jesus to be a prophet like Moses, we're going to be looking for three things. We'll look at his teaching itself, what his teaching is like. But we will also be looking at his signs, just as Moses performed signs. And we will also be looking for Dun, 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 in Exodus. Because all the prophets, true prophets of God, taught from God himself, and they oftentimes performed signs um, to demonstrate the authority of their prophecy. Uh, but none of them performed the ultimate Exodus. So we could look at Jeremiah and Elijah as an example for being tremendously like Moses in a lot of ways. In fact, I mean, Elijah, when he is discouraged, he meets God on the same mountain that Moses does. So there are tons of similarities. But who do Moses and Elijah meet on a mountain in the Gospels? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus is God himself who sends the prophet, and he is the, the sort of final, ultimate prophet of God as well. So first, let's look at Jesus' teaching. One reason I want to do this is because I believe that one of the ways that Jesus' teaching is most twisted in society is that people want to understand Jesus' teaching apart from him. Right. They want to reduce him to a sort of Gandhi or yeah. Buddha. Well, you know, one of the reasons why we respect Gandhi and Buddha is they didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, because we would regard that rightly as egotistical, if not insane. Jesus, however, does say that. Yeah. <laughs> and we trust his teaching as being trustworthy. Good. Um, so we need to just from the outset define that Jesus' teaching is not just a sort of classic list of timeless truths that are reducible to a moral path of life. There's an edge to it. 
And I believe that Jesus's teachings can sort of be summarized with how his teaching ministry begins in all the synoptic gospels, especially in the gospel of Mark. Jesus's first words are, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He basically says this the same way in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, he begins his ministry by saying, um, what is it? The passage in Luke where he talks about the the poor will have good news preached to them. And uh, he my, uh, reads the famous passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 61 yeah. about the servant mm-hmm. who will set those in captive free and liberate those oppressed, restore yeah. sight to the blind. And he sits down in one of the most epic mic drop moments ever. He says, this is me of whom it is written. So Jesus' teaching is not simply, hey, do this, but it's first and foremost, hey, this is what's happening. And what Jesus says what is happening is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So before Jesus' teaching is instruction of what to do, it's an announcement. What's up? What's happening? So let's look at that. What is the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is announcing? I think for for this, it's important. Anytime you see the word of, mm-hmm. uh, it's important to ask how the of is functioning. Correct. And there, there's actually like 26 different ways it can it can function. But simply, mm-hmm. it usually describes either source or characterization. Yes. Uh, so we could say uh, Saul of Tarsus, okay, meaning Saul came from Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say the, the altar of bronze. Okay? It, it's, it's constituted by mm-hmm. bronze. So anytime you, you read, you're reading your Bible and you see two nouns connected by this of, the righteousness of God, the mm-hmm. kingdom of heaven, uh, think basically it, it usually has something to do with characterization or source. Mm-hmm. So the importance for Jesus' declaration that the kingdom of heaven has come Mm-hmm. meaning something has come to us from heaven. There's the reign of God that has invaded planet Earth, mm-hmm. and principalities and powers, human rulers, uh, and, it, it's, and it's very similar. Uh, it's with Matthew, or sorry, uh, Mark 1. This is the Genesis. This is the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, it was a title that Caesar would claim for himself, mm-hmm. the Son of God. So there's a new kingdom that has invaded earth, and it comes to us from heaven. It's mm-hmm. also characterized by, it's of heaven, it's heavenly, it has um, the principles, the values, The it's characterized by heaven. Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, you That's see... That's the, the passage I was thinking of. Okay, well, I'll let you... you uh, no, 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 go uh, ahead. I'm glad you brought it up. It, it's it's the, the four beasts... Yep. And the four beasts are defeated. The power is taken Rome, away from the four beasts. It's Babylon, Persia, Babylon, Rome, right? Persia, Greece, and Rome. Yeah, and they're all characterized by beasts because human kingdoms and human rules and human authority are beastly in their nature. Correct. They're oppressive. They're violent. The will to power. A will to power. Yeah. And so the reason, specifically, that there's one like a son of man, who is given the kingdom is because when the kingdom of heaven manifests itself on earth, all of that is turned upside down. Mm-hmm. It's a humane kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that comes to us from heaven, the kingdom that is characterized by heaven, is characterized by people being given dignity 
and and uh, respect and honor and love as human beings. It's a very humane kingdom. God acting on behalf of humanity. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how when Jesus is announcing um, the arrival of the kingdom, he's implicitly right announcing his arrival as the king. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the most, this is kind of a tangent, but it's related. One of the most fascinating things of the gospel is what's oftentimes referred to as the messianic secret, mm-hmm. which, uh, once again, by the way, Tolkien depicts us with Aragorn, sheds a little bit of sort of like insight to why a king would be secretive. Uh, but in the gospels, it's weird. Jesus performs miracles, and then he tells people, don't tell them. Yeah. Don't tell them. <laughs> the and the... Have I brought up before the church father's explanation for this? Hmm. That Jesus knows that it is necessary, and in fact it's fated by human sinfulness, that he will be crucified. Hmm. And he does not want people to be fully cognizant and therefore fully guilty for the crime that they commit Hmm. against him. So Jesus announces the kingdom rather than the king to give them opportunity for those who are open of heart to repent and to be restored by him rather than by just forcefully by like trumpet blasts mm. revealing in totality who he is so that people are fully in his earthly life responsible for their choice yeah. to him. Yeah, certainly. It's called the mercy hypothesis. He, because he, he, there is the, the episode where um, he does something miraculous and they want to take him away and make him king. Yeah. Um, the whole revealed, hidden Messiah, revealed Messiah, I think part of that... Part of that is a literary device that Mark uses, Uh because in one sense, Jesus is pretty vocal and pretty obvious in his messianic intent from the beginning, and uh, we're talking about maybe uh, N.T. Wright later on. The fact that Jesus gathers around him 12 disciples. Israel is waiting for the eschatological Israel, uh, the renewal of Israel as a nation, and the fact that Jesus gathers around him 12 disciples he comes out of galilee which is a pro uh messianic region you had yeah. all kinds of uh weird stuff happening up there um but i mean it, it he, he's gathered around him the new eschatological israel mm-hmm. and he's doing stuff and he's saying stuff that um yeah it, it's it's kind of hidden but at the same time he's he's also being pretty vocal about it. It's like a constant dare to infer the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> his actions speak as loudly as his words. Yeah. And he sometimes stops one syllable short of yeah. just saying it. Yeah. But he puts it out there to where it's it's ultimately people's responsibility whether or not they will infer the obvious about him. So um, I think it's safe to say the kingdom of heaven is um, the kingdom. So what, what, what does a king bring? Well, a king brings his reign. He brings mm-hmm. his dominion. So the kingdom of heaven is the phrase used in St. Matthew's gospel. and St. Mark, St. Luke, it's referred to as the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God is simply God's exercise of his kingship on earth. And Jesus, by being God, he reveals what kind of king Man. God is. So the type of king that God is, the type of kingdom that God brings by his presence through himself and through his church Um, It calls for a certain type of response, a a certain type of getting in line with the coming kingdom. And this is the call to repent. You know, I think repentance is obviously central to the Bible, and I think misunderstood. 
Um, repent in Hebrew comes from the word shuv, which is a fun word, and it means to turn or to return. Um, so by Jesus saying repent, so often we hear a sort of turn or burn, like get in line with me or get behind me. Um, and there is a sense of responsibility, like you, 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 you do need to get this right, but at the same time, return, return to what? Return to right relationship with God. That Jesus is not a king coming so much to conquer humanity as he is coming to rescue humanity. Right. Get and, on board with me. Yeah, and it's so often, you know, when people, well, they have their conversion experience or they their their come to Jesus moment, and you ask them to unpack that. It's like, well, you know, I I came to faith, mm-hmm. where repentance is actually a part of that. To say, well, I just believe. Well, did you did you repent? Did you turn back? Did you yeah. submit? Did you reorient? Uh, at least initially, your drives, your thinking, your beliefs. Did you reorient them back to God? Was there a submission of that to God, or is it just, well, I just believe that Jesus died for my sins? Okay. Yeah. That's a part of it, but and, and you see the preaching in Acts as well. It always starts with, there's a repentance. That's right. There's a, a breaking away from a secular mindset that says, I'm autonomous, yep. my life is mine, my values are mine, the only one who tells me what to do is me. To returning and reorienting, so it's, it's good that you brought that up. It's a returning and a reorienting back to the the reign of the the reign of God is now covering my life. That's right. I love Stanley Hauerwas's quote that the gospel is political, just not in the way that you think. Mm-hmm. Jesus is highly political. Mm-hmm. He came to bring a kingdom. Yep. It's just a different type of politics, which should come as no surprise that Jesus was um, crucified. <laughs> under political charges. So um, the call to repentance is not simply a call to um, think good thoughts or feel good feelings or sort of private habits, that Jesus is calling for a complete alteration of life in conformity with the kingdom. And this calls to mind to me the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're not going to walk through the entire Sermon on the Mount, but I would like to uh, just summarize a few salient points about it that illustrate what we're talking about. Uh, Before Jesus jumps into the Ten Commandments and sort of what the ethical life of a kingdom citizen is, he first begins with an announcement, what are called the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus lists these classes of people that do not look blessed, but he pronounces them blessed. The Greek word here is makarios, which could also be like translated like congratulations to the poor in spirit, or happy are those who are poor in spirit. Well, why are they happy? It's not because they're poor in spirit. It's because of what's coming to the poor in spirit. It's because of what's coming to the merciful. So all the ethical teachings, all the understanding of the human person all the teaching of how to live life in obedience to God in the Sermon on the Mount is rooted first and foremost in the coming of the kingdom of God. Um, and I just can't stress that enough. Well, and with that, the, the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes we, we take that as, well, these are really good suggestions. You know, if we yeah. live this way, and it's not. This is, as you pointed out, this is where Jesus imitates Moses. Moses went up on a mountain. That's and, right. And he, gave, he got the Torah he got the Ten Commandments. Not the Ten Suggestions. Not the Ten Suggestions, and he brought them back to Israel. And so Jesus imitates by going up on a mountain 
and saying, this is actually the lifestyle expected of my disciples. That's right. And it's a, it's a well, demanding and, life. And, and if you, one of the reasons I really like Matthew's gospel is the level of discipleship, what he's calling people to. Yeah. The bar is really high. I yeah. mean, often, many times he says, look, if you're not going to be obedient, don't follow. Yeah. You, you can't. You, you build your, your life on the foundation of my words. Uh, discipleship, the, the call is to absolute submission and obedience to Jesus. So people mm-hmm. who feel like, well, and this is where the discussion, well, are works necessary? Yeah, works are necessary. You, you can't have a conversion experience and then say, but I'm not going to submit my life totally to Jesus as Lord and say, he is my king now. That's right. He might be your best friend, but he's also king. And that lifestyle that is outlined in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout Matthew's gospel says, my disciples are in complete submission and obedience to me. Now, he loves us. He's your friend. All that stuff still goes. But to your point, he brought a kingdom of which he is the king. Yeah. And disobedience is treason. And that repentance is not a one-and-done thing. That's a lifestyle. Right. That is the daily take up your cross and follow me call of Jesus Christ. And he'll give us the grace to do it. But um, we've talked so much already about how the gospel is not hey, trust me when I say I'll do this thing one day and you'll be there. It's really um, surrendering to Jesus Christ and allowing him to change us into the person that we were created by God to be in his image. Um, So Sermon on the Mount, it provides his teaching. One of the things that you see without a, a, let me say it this way, the most frequent response to Jesus' teaching is amazement whether it's mm. angry, indignant amazement, or shock, or joyous amazement. No one ever walks away from anything Jesus says bored. <laughs> they might be puzzled, they might be angry, they might be in tears of joy, but they're never bored. And one of the frequent um, sayings of those who hear him is, wow, someone who teaches with authority. Yeah. He never says, thus saith the Lord. He says, I say unto you. Yeah. And reveals the inner dimension the deeper spiritual meaning that was always implicit within the Torah. Why? Because he's the Lord who gave the Torah on Sinai to Moses, and that's what gives him the authority to come not to abolish the Old Testament, but really to reveal its inner dimension and bring it to fulfillment. If you, I know we always get to uh, recommended reading at the end, but... Mm -hmm. uh, to your point, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Jacob Neusner who wrote a book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, and he's, he's a Jewish man, and he writes the book uh, to, to describe or to explain if he had encountered Jesus in that day, if he had met Jesus yeah. face-to-face and heard his teaching, why, as a Jewish person, he would not have accepted Jesus as Messiah. Hmm. It's a great read. But one of his main points— the, the main problem he has with Jesus is exactly what you just said. He said it would have been perfectly acceptable as a rabbi to say, you know, rabbi so-and-so says, but I say. And I had a discussion with rabbi so-and-so, and there's a disagreement among rabbis. But for Jesus to be a, an itinerant preacher or considered a rabbi, for him to say, you know, Moses said, blah, 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 but I say. That's right. Neusner says that is you just do not do that. You do not you, you, nobody has the authority to say, you know what Moses says, but I'm going to give you the real deal. 
Unless he's God himself. Uh, unless, yeah. yeah. So on, on what basis did Jesus do that? But a man like uh, a really intelligent, wonderful man like Neusner, Neusner said, if I had heard that back in the day, I would have went up to him, and I would have said, you know, Rabbi, I respect your teaching, but I just can't follow you. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot to take in, <laughs> just to think about that. So... um I'll move very quickly because we're out of time from the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus' parables. Most of Jesus' parables are all actually contained in narrative form, which I just, who could not love that? Yeah. C.S. Lewis has said it this way, why Jesus is taught in parables. Uh, Jesus himself says that those um, who have ears to hear may hear. Um, he's always just poign- poignantly deep and somewhat veiled in what he says. But C.S. Lewis says this, truth, fiction, fiction sneaks truth past the dragons. Fiction sneaks truth past the watchful dragons. And by that, he means how when you tell a good story, it basically bypasses our defensive mechanisms of our more like frontal lobe cognition, and it sleeps deeper into our heart and imagination. So when Jesus tells i think one of the funnier moments in uh the gospel is jesus parables become less veiled near the end of his ministry when he's going to be crucified in a couple days and he tells a story and it is so obvious after so you see the quote the, the parable ends in uh matthew and luke's gospel and it says quote the pharisees perceive that he told this story about them <laughs> so jesus is constantly casting his audience as characters within his yeah. stories. Why? Because a story is taking place. And the story that he is telling is the story of the Exodus fulfilled. Not the Exodus that happened during Moses, but that which Moses' Exodus signified. That this time it is a liberation not from Pharaoh, bondage, mm. and uh, drudgery. This time it's liberation from sin itself bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to the devil. And this comes up frequently in Christ's parables. Um, this is actually, as N.T. Wright points out, I think rightly, this is uh, all over the one of the most beloved parables, of the parable of the prodigal son, mm-hmm. that the Exodus is occurring. So it should come to us as no surprise that when Luke puts us on the mountain of transfiguration, you have the two great prophets, Elijah and Moses, speaking to Christ. What are they speaking to him about? They're speaking to him about, quote, his exodus. In some um, Bibles, it may be translated like departure or something, but the word being used there is the word for exodus, that um, what Jesus is going to accomplish is um, the ultimate liberation uh, from sin and from the devil and the paradoxical deliverance through death from death. So you think about how Moses guided the people to freedom through yep. the Red Sea, which is a symbol of water. chaos and drowning, yep. and Christ actually passes through death to take us to the other side. So we started us out with Moses' threefold pattern of um, signs, teaching, and the Exodus, and they all mutually reinforce one another. Well, you see the same with Jesus. What was Jesus doing before he was giving the Sermon on the Mount? He was healing the sick and casting out demons and uh, restoring people tangibly to community with God and each other. Yeah. Um, 
Brother Mark, do you have something to add to that? Well, yeah, uh, the passage, it, you get to the end of uh, Matthew chapter 3, and, and it, it's telling them all these things that Jesus had been doing. And then the text says, and when he saw the crowds, mm-hmm. or uh, upon seeing the crowd, so he goes up on the mountain to give the Sermon on the Mount, in response to, mm-hmm. he's been doing this ministry, and he's been healing people, and they're coming from all over. And uh, the way that Matthew tells the story, it's kind of like, you're, it's all the places, they're coming from all the places that David had once conquered. So you've got this renewal of the Davidic kingdom kind of thing that's beginning to happen, because mm-hmm. people are coming from all over. And it seems to be that in response to, he's getting some positive feedback, getting some good press, people are starting to follow him. Then he goes up on the mountain, gives them, in a sense, the new law of the new kingdom that, okay, this is all great, but if you're going to follow me, mm-hmm. again, here's the high demand of what it means to be a resident of the kingdom. Here's what it means to follow me. Um, and, of course, you know, we're going to get to uh, Paul and, and the, uh, the apostles who are going to unpack this and uh, talk about the inside-out kingdom Mm-hmm. Jesus, nowhere in Matthew did Jesus say, oh, by the way, I'm going to die, but I'm going to raise from the dead. Well, he does say that, but and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to regenerate you. He doesn't necessarily do any of that. The apostles will fill in that part. But uh-huh. um, yeah, the cost of discipleship is high, but it's in response to people are coming to him, and he wants to make sure they're getting the full picture, or at least a really good picture on the front end. Yeah. This is what I'll say in closing. There's a book called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, which uh, I personally like. have a lot of uh, respect for Jordan Peterson. Uh, Jesus' teaching is not that. His rules are not, quote, like, do this in order to have a successful life. Hmm. That ultimately, um, Jesus' moral teachings are nestled within a narrative framework, what theologians call an eschatological framework. Hmm. And this is why he teaches in parables. Because there's no such thing as a neutral character. And I think so often we can look at Jesus' teaching and think like, oh, that's a good idea, or oh, I find that inspiring, or oh, that would be something ideal to aspire to, rather than the concrete demands of God, um, rooted in the concrete self-giving act of God, culminating in his own death upon the cross. So Jesus' teachings, um, they ultimately center on him. And they center on his gospel, and they center on the gospel of his, his passion and his death and his resurrection for us, and um, and that's not something to take lightly. Well, and and two people, if if you ask the average person, what did Jesus talk about most? Well, he talked about love. You know, it's about loving people and be. Well, no, actually, Jesus relatively spends little time talking about love. Mm-hmm. He talks about the kingdom. Yeah. What he talks about most is the reign of God. So when people want to, like you said at the beginning, we want to make him Buddha, we want to make him Gandhi, we want to make him just this this prophet of tolerance, somebody who says, look, just in my name, just go around loving people. Yeah. Okay, there is the speech in John 14, 15, 16, where he speaks to the disciples, but uh, no, Jesus didn't primarily walk around telling people to love each other. That's he right. announced the reign of God, which means culture, individuals, uh, values, um, what we believe, all of it it needs to now be in submission to him as the king of the kingdom that comes from heaven and is characterized by heaven. Yeah, an example of Christ uh, 
viewing himself as God and fully believing that everything centers on him. Yep. Think about the heart-moving m- uh, story of the sinful woman who anoints his feet mm-hmm. with her tears and her perfume and her hair. And, uh, of course, the, the religious teacher is scandalized by this and offended. But what does Jesus say that's even more shocking than tolerating this woman's very affectionate penitential behavior? He says, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis points out that no matter what someone has done wrong, Jesus forgives them if they repent, meaning that he sees it ultimately as offense against himself. Yeah. <laughs> Which means that he views himself as God. Yeah. Um, so these teachings are not just teachings from a teacher. Yeah. Uh, the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ is uh, the prophetic ministry yeah. of God himself, revealing it- himself in the new life to man. And we talked about, you know, the whole hidden Messiah revealed Messiah. The, he, there's an episode in Mark chapter 2, and the reason, uh, the, there's a parallel. It's the guy who comes down through the roof. Yeah. Okay, they, they, um, there's a parallel sto- telling of the story of Matthew, but I like Mark's gospel because mm-hmm. after they uh, lower the man down, he's in front of Jesus, and Jesus forgives him. It says that the the Pharisees wondered about this in their heart, and they and they add, they say, "Who can? Why does this man do this? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Mm-hmm. And so they recognize that Jesus is uh, doing something that only God actually has the ability to do and say. And so he poses that question: Which is easier to tell this man your sins are forgiven or to heal him? Trick question, because in yes. Psalm one hundred three or Psalm one hundred three or Psalm one hundred four, yes, Psalm one hundred three. Yeah, it says, uh, God, who, he, praise God who forgives your sins and heals your diseases. Uh-huh. And that connection between healing and forgiveness in the psalm, Jesus acts out. And so when he says, well, which is easier, to heal or to forgive? The answer is they're equally difficult, and only God can do it. Exactly. And they, they ask that question, how is this guy, what, who does he think he is to pronounce the forgiveness of sins? Yeah. Like I said, well, he can because either he is God in the flesh, come to redeem humanity, or he's not, and we should kill him. And they kill him, but he raises from the dead. So yeah, and <laughs> the final vindication and proof that he is who he said he was. Yeah, and mysteriously brings about his kingdom to us. Yeah, through that sequence of events. Yeah. Well, uh, the message of Jesus is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed this talk, and I hope our listeners do as well. Thirty Minute Theology is a podcast produced by the Missionaries of Saint Fatini, a nonprofit dedicated to the Catholic Church's work of catechesis and evangelism. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 30-Minute Theology is made possible by the generous patronage of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.podbean.com slash 30-Minute Theology, where you can become a patron of the show. If you have questions about this podcast and how it can be used for parish catechesis or small groups, or are interested in supplemental resources, please reach out to the Missionaries of St. Fotini by emailing john at stfotini.com. Thank you for listening.